Welcome to Women in Sustainability, the podcast where we speak with some of the world's foremost female professionals from across the sustainability field. With me, your host, Emily Fripp. This month, I have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Inna Smith, whom I met acting as a trustee of a UK-based charity working on issues of natural resources and sustainability. As the month of March is where we celebrate International Women's Day, it felt appropriate to invite a guest who has become a gender and women's rights expert, someone who has spent her career supporting the creation of a more diverse and equal and inclusive society. Innes has and continues to have an impressive career. With an MSc and PhD in social anthropology, she spent 10 years as a university lecturer before taking up a more hands-on and practical role. Working as a senior gender advisor in Oxfam, and then as a senior gender expert at the Asian Development Bank, she is now a gender and women's rights consultant with over 30 years of professional experience in the fields of gender equality, gender-based violence and gender mainstreaming. She has worked around the world, but especially in East Asia. Innes has, over the last 10 years, been working in Myanmar, working on a full range of issues and methodologies pertaining to gender equality and social inclusion in the context of a country with extreme social and human rights issues, where the natural resources and ecology are also under intense pressure. To her private and professional life, she has brought a commitment to gender and social justice, which translates into feminist activism, as well as in the last four years, an active engagement with Extinction Rebellion, working for a transition to a just and fossil fuel-free society. Innes, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today to talk about women and sustainability. Um, We've known each other for a few years now in our role as trustees, and I know that gender equality and social inclusion is just such an incredibly important topic to yourself. Um, And we're now in Women's Sustainability Week. It's perfect timing. And I'm just, I'm just really keen to kind of understand and hear from you sort of how and why you've ended up in this space like what drove you to to take on this such an important work 10 years in working in Myanmar there's there's some great tales we had there and with Oxfam and others and so how did you end up in this sort of women and gender equality social inclusion in that space has it always been something you've wanted to do or is it sort of something you've you've ended up um, moving into great nice to be talking to you Emily, uh, first of all, um, happy International Women's Day for tomorrow. So this is exactly the, the right time to be talking. And thanks very much for inviting me to do this with you and this conversation. Uh, how did I end up here? That's a very good question. Um, in me, there was something always about women's rights and uh, an interest in kind of what we call gender justice. And I still remember as a child being quite perplexed at the fact that my wonderful parents, and especially my mother, would treat me differently from my brothers. And uh, it wasn't that I felt uh, um, diminished by it. I just did not understand it at all. And uh, to add to that an interest in, in, sort of in, a, in a world bigger than mine, I was brought up in a very provincial uh, location. And so when you put together uh, these two things, it meant that uh, very young, after having nearly finished university, I left Italy where I was born 
And uh, I came to this country and other countries where I started exploring where, what I wanted to do. And it wasn't difficult for me to then, first I started studying languages and then anthropology. Um, and uh, my, it, professionally, I, I started working as, a, as an academic in various institutions. And I have great memories from the ISS in the Netherlands. I spent time at Oxford here, and then I went to the LSE. But then I sort of felt that from being an academic, I wanted to become a practitioner. I wanted to do things. And at that time, I had an opportunity to start working with Oxfam. I was there for 20 years nearly. It's a long time. As a gender advisor, different locations, different, mostly working, actually, interesting enough, in East Asia. And then in my third incarnation, now I'm a consultant. And all across this various lives of mine, I've worked on women's rights and uh, and uh, gender equality, social inclusion, and as you said, the last 10 years have been uh, spent either in Myanmar or working on Myanmar. Unfortunately, since the coup of uh, 1st of February two years ago, it has not been possible to go back, but I still work, uh, you know, I'm in contact with my colleagues and uh, spend time working with them. Don't know if that answers so as a gender advisor, I mean, it's it's one of those terms, isn't it? We hear about women, women rights, women equality, gender, gender equality. It's quite hard to kind of understand what do we mean by that and, and in what context. And I expect that's changed as well over the years, over the last 20, 30 years. The sort of what does it mean being a gender advisor? Gosh, it has, it has really changed because in the first years of my career, it was really a lot of the work had uh, uh, two elements. One of awareness raising and breaking the barrier of uh, resistance. Uh, I remember one day, you know, spam a colleague, a male colleague, sticking his head in our little cubby hole that was the, the gender team uh, um, office. And he stuck his head through the door and said, shouldn't you be home looking after the children? I mean, this was like about 25 years ago, it wasn't 200 years ago. Uh, so in the first few years, uh, it was about raising awareness and also about beginning to put together the tools that could give us um, a practical approach to resolve what it was clear were problems in terms of the position of women in society about their rights and about their safety and dignity. And I'm glad to say that Oxfam was one of the first organizations that took this uh, seriously. The first, uh, one of the first organizations to establish a gender policy in 1983. Um, and so our work at that time, in fact, focused a lot in uh, developing tools for uh, gender analysis, for uh, program design, and especially for training. We have uh, what is known uh, as the Oxfam Gender Training Manual that is, I think it's from 1992, and it's for a long, long time been the bestseller of the organization. It's still used in many, many countries in the world. More recently, many things have changed. Uh, the conditions, uh, first of all, the, wor the, the world has changed, you know, this kind of intersecting crisis that we have uh, 
um, from climate crisis to energy crisis to poverty um, are, are, are posing, uh, are making it much more difficult to find solutions. You cannot uh, uh, use an approach very easily that, for example, takes uh, things by sectors. Um, and this uh, is, goes parallel, hand in hand, uh, with different approaches that we are, we are adopting. For example, uh, the, the, the notion of uh, using an intersectional approach, it helps you understand not only how different aspects of your identity uh, determines either the privilege or the discrimination you experience, but also it helps you to devise ways, ways to find information and seek solution in this more holistic and intersecting way. So the, the, the changes have been made, many. There, have been, uh, there has been progress as well. I, you know, it has to be said, uh, for example, the statistics on women's health and education show you know, considerable progress. And there has been a tiny little bit of progress on women's party political participation. But I'm afraid that they, they, some, some things seem to be difficult to shift. Uh, for example, in your very field, uh, Emily, the, the women still have a very poor access and control over natural resources, for example, especially land. Um, uh, the limited presence in position of authority and decision making at different level, uh, it's it's very really limited. I, in my work in in Myanmar, for example, we used to work quite a lot with uh, groups of forest users associations, especially in Kachin, in the northeast of the country. But although women uh, have a deep relationship with with the forest in, in different ways. It was the men who were officially recognized as the users who took part in meetings and took decisions. And also at the other side of the spectrum, you might remember that at COP27, there were about 110, 115 uh, country leaders, uh, representatives of the country, and seven were women. And it's sort of, you see, we got a long way, a long way to go. It feels like we, we do make sort of one step forward and two back sometimes in, in this space, doesn't it? And are there any particular sort of, I don't know, examples or scenarios or, or places you've visited where you've seen such an amazing change? I mean, I remember being in the work, working in the West Bank, working with um, a sort of rural Palestinian community and having... Uh, having to think really innovatively of how do we get women's voices. So we weren't allowed to have the men and women in the same room together. And so we created a, a, a system where we put a curtain down the middle and, and the women could then listen. So they weren't allowed to speak, but they could hear the dialogue, which then meant we could follow up with the women and have a conversation with them afterwards. And our, our, it was such a simple solution, was just putting a curtain, hanging a piece of material between... The, down the middle of the room but it, but I mean I remember that 10-15 years on and how fundamental it was to changing the conversations we were having with the groups of the villagers at the time because it was about we were doing water sanitation and learning that one of the big issues that the women had was 
was an access to a toilet because they were in the they were in the desert and they, there were no trees and there was nowhere where you could go to the toilet. And it and you could you know learning those sort of tales. I mean, you you've got plenty. I I mean, are there any that stand out? For sure, you? there's so many things. I mean, it's funny that you should mention the question of toilets. I mean, I keep saying to my colleagues and friends that one of the things in my work I do most often is actually check latrines in particularly refugee camps because indeed uh, without locks, without lights, um, and especially separating out uh, men's latrine from, from female's latrine. And again, this is in Myanmar, one of the things, for example, that we found extremely difficult to achieve, but uh, we, we, with various steps in the middle, we managed to uh, find a solution for uh, menstrual um, sanitary towels when they were already the, the famous menstrual hygiene material. Uh, because uh, um, the men objected in the camps uh, to, have, to have the women dispose them in baskets, uh, even so inside the women's latrines. They didn't want, and the women were very ashamed to carry them across where there was a, an incinerator. So in the end, we, with, with some very patient uh, engineers, we devised like a little post box that was attached to the outside of the latrines so the women could post them uh, from the inside and they had a, a flap in the middle so they could be taken very discreetly to the incinerator and emptied. But the number of... Amazing. Uh, yeah, it's it just a number of meetings and... Uh, and in a more structural way, I think that, that perhaps the, the most fantastic opportunity that we have for progress um, is the fact that finally uh, people are recognizing the effectiveness of women's collective action, of women working together, uh, women uh, uh, sort of really, really putting together their energies, their intelligence, their opportunities uh, to the benefit of everyone, um, I worked uh, quite intensely in the months in the months following the the tsunami, but in in Aceh, and it was a very dramatic time. But also because uh, this is where we had uh, we achieved we managed to collect considerable evidence of the fact that in most so-called natural disaster women die in much larger numbers. Um, like, oh, yes. Oh, yes. That's, I want, oh, uh, there is, okay. there is, uh, we were among the people, the first people who, were, who collected the evidence for this. In, uh, in the tsunami, for every man who died, three women died. And this is a normal, uh, it's a normal occurrence. So the only places where men uh, die in great number, in, it's in, uh, in the global north. Um, but otherwise, it's uh, it, that is evidence that, and uh, so for us, uh, um, working with women together gave them not only um, uh, more security because the, the trauma was considered was uh, for them and for the men, um, and there were groups for everything, you know, groups uh, that could work with the wash uh, teams. Uh, to see whether the services provided services provided were were sufficient, uh, but also uh, groups of our own staff 
who, by working together, uh, they could also, how can I put it, be a kind of uh, vanguard to convince uh, um, um, uh, their male counterparts to operate in a certain way. And they were uh, uh, noting things that sometimes men didn't notice. For example, but when they used to go to the field, they kept noticing that because so many men had, uh, had died and because uh, Sumatra, particularly that part of Sumatra, is a, it's an area of very, very large uh, uh, out-migration of men, the women left in the villages were often quite elderly. And so handing them a huge piece of tarpaulin to cover their the housing was not working because they were not able to cut it, they could, they could not use it. So the women could come back and talk to their male counterpart to say, you had to cut the tarpaulins in four, in two. So these kind of things, um, when women work together, um, it's, it, they achieve greater things. Uh, and this happens at different levels. Uh, again, going back to Myanmar, women's rights organizations, again, the press has covered this abundantly. The women's rights organization uh, activists were at the forefront of the fight for democracy in the country uh, and also have obviously paid the price for that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's uh, I think it, in women's collective action lies so much uh, of what we can achieve. And I mean, there's there's still plenty to, to do. I mean, you know, the things we're talking about now are, are, are still there. I find that statistic fascinating about the number of women that die is significantly more than, than men in in natural events or, or, you know, disasters and stuff. Is that due to where these events take place? So they're in sort of rural areas where maybe there's more women or is it access to being able to jump in a car and get out of the, the way? What... It's a, you 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 have a, you you have the, the part of the answer certainly where they they are and what time of the day it is um, plays a great part because the tsunami hit lunchtime at the weekend when the men are out and about on their motorbike going to the market and doing uh, errands you know things like that and the women were in the houses so they were caught unaware. But the other uh, several reasons are that, for example, um, women went uh, to look for the children and for their elderly parents. So they didn't go. They, they, they stayed to, to, to look for others. Um, another reason was that uh, women very often do not uh, speak uh, national languages. They speak local languages because they lower education. And so if there are warnings, either through the radio or other means, uh, they might not understand them. Um, lower education means that in the case of Ache, many women walked to the beach after the first wave because they didn't realize, because the sea went back before it came rolling uh, and they didn't realize what that, that, that was a tsunami. Many people thought that two other reasons were to blame and I don't know what to think of these explanations. One was that women... Um, uh, couldn't swim. And I do believe that that is the case. For example, in, uh, in, in floods, it's often the case that women and children uh, drown. And uh, I, uh, in, in, uh, in Vietnam, for example, organizations uh, 
the national, I cannot remember the name, the National Federation for Women. But I don't know if it's the exact name. They, long time ago, had started doing swimming lessons for women because of that. Because during the flood, uh, many women died. And the other reason that people have uh, thought was uh, to blame for women uh, drowning, also in the floods in Bangladesh, is that uh, their clothing and their long hair made it, uh, you know, difficult to feel. How true that, I don't know. But obviously, it's a, it's a number of, uh, of reasons. But it, there is a lot of evidence and um, uh, quite, quite, it's quite an interesting uh, it's also the consequences for men were in- interesting to watch because the trauma was immense for them and they were very much uh, um, at a loss how to to care for their children uh, because that's not what they normally did. Uh, and in, another interesting thing, sorry, and then stop me because otherwise I'll talk about this forever. Um, another thing that, that came out of that is that young men found it difficult there was a there was to to marry again, uh, and this was two or three years ago. Because of course the older men were more likely to have resources and money and savings, uh, and the, and the, so yeah. So it's almost like like the reverse of what happens when in the, in the northern world when we go to war or wherever when there's a war and you tend to lose a lot of the the men and then you have the same issues coming back and that sort of imbalance. And it comes back to this need for gender balance and gender equality, doesn't it? I mean, we're we're talking about we're we're not talking about advocating for for one particular segment of society, but we're talking about society working together and working in in harmony on these things. Absolutely. I mean, to do and and what I think is is still the case is is speaking out about gender inequality does have negative connotations for for all sorts of people whether it's in this country. Uh, and actually, I think it's interesting when you, when you get, it doesn't matter which way at the moment you, you speak, whether you're talking about it being pro and balance or you're advocating for a particular voice. The, the world as we have at the moment is very quick to react either way and create quite challenging consequences for people. In some cases, it's, it's violence, it's death, it's still happening. But even in this country, I mean, Social media, maybe it's not directly causing uh, a, a death, but indirectly it certainly does. Um, it's a bit depressing, isn't it? We might have to end on a happy note. But how do, how do you respond to, to the sort of the, the fear and, and how, do you ad, how do you advise others and, and from, you know, to sort of it's what, take, take this up, like, you know, be a champion of the cause and we've got to speak out. How do, how do you balance that? that out I guess oh god it's it's it, you are right that it's still difficult and in fact to some extent uh, um the the discourse has become more complex because of course the the very notion of uh, uh, gender and sexual identities etc has become so you know the recognition of non-binary uh, uh, identities uh, has made things a lot more difficult um I think how to how do I tackle this? I should say first that age helps uh, because uh, you acquire a little bit two things you acquire you little acquire a little bit more gravitas or at least I hope so sometimes uh, 
but also you care less about the consequences. Uh, um, I don't mean that I'm, I, I don't care about how people react to me, but you care less about the possible consequences for your career because you feel that you got, particularly when you're trying to speak truth to power, so you're a little bit more uh, uh, protected by your very age. Um, I think building building trust uh, is essential um, because I know that, as I said, I worked in, in Myanmar for 10 years and that has helped me immensely because people can see you go back and back and back and uh, uh, so that you are not there for some passing interest, uh, uh, which has to do with uh, your career, a kind of uh, uh, a passing commitment. So that helps. Um, and also a, um, uh, the, the desire the, no, not to be afraid to show your passion, because... If you endeavor into something like this, whatever the topic is, whether it's sustainability or whether it's gender, uh, I think that sometimes we think that we need to be professional and that means uh, holding back. But I think showing your pas passion is important because by showing your passion, you, you are also showing that this is beyond what you do as a job. This is real life and you care about what, what happens to people. So, and then the rest, uh, it's a little bit of uh, skill about knowing what different uh, tools you need with different audiences. Um, for example, obviously, if you speak to a government official, you might use statistics. If you, if you speak to a, um, someone representing an NGO or a local authority, you might use much more examples of a situation, of an approach. Um, and, uh, and that means that you need to understand what people to stand, stand for. I think that there are, in some situation, you also can walk away if it becomes uh, either too difficult or counterproductive. Because sometimes I'm conscious of the fact that in certain situations people are antagonistic because they are afraid of change um, and perhaps they've not understood what you were saying earlier. We are not in this to give power to women. You know, it, we are in it because we are looking for, for the kind of equality that uh, um, allows everybody to benefit from, uh, from what's available and also allow all of us to um, to become more resilient uh, to the, the crisis that we are confronting. And only, only by sharing equally the, what's available, the resources, the knowledge, uh, we can do that. And you sort of talked about sort of making sure that equality, it, you, the passion, I mean, it, it comes, comes out in everything you say and, and the belief. And I mean, you're, it's not just your day job, it's, it's everything about, you know, from what I know and from the role and, and sort of taking part more in the activism role and, and, and stuff. I mean, that is equally as important to you as sort of, or more so, and um, moving, yeah, in, in, your, in your life, I guess. Definitely, definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm now that I don't work as intensely as in the past, <laughs> I have a little bit more time to, to give to my activism, both uh, 
uh, to feminist uh, uh, undertaking, and uh, and but also to uh, to climate. I am I am very concerned about the situation the world finds itself, uh, and I'm an active member of uh, Extinction Rebellion. And as such, uh, it's actually quite interesting to bring the two things together. Um, and in fact, uh, uh, tomorrow um, on International Women's Day, there will be in London um, uh, various uh, activities, various events uh, that bring together concern uh, for the environment and, and particularly for the, the climate crisis and the fact that women uh, are, again, um, experiencing the worst consequences in so many ways. I mean, it's not a chance that 80% of climate refugees are women and children. But even in this country, I mean, if you have a flood in a, you know, in a little village, who is going to have to take responsibility to still cook a meal and uh, find fresh water in those uh, situations or being able to, to wash clothes, you know, for... Uh, so we don't have to find, uh, uh, to go very far. And of course, there are the extreme cases as well. But, uh, and, and for me, being an activist means that uh, I can... <laughs> I can push myself a little bit more than I do professionally and uh, I can bring together my, you know, we often talk about the idea of uh, work and life balance. So I feel that that's a way of bringing the two together a little bit more. <laughs> so I mean, we will be watching with bated breath to see what happens tomorrow and, uh, and sending our support with it. But it's um, just finally, I guess, you know, if you were starting out again, or for those that are starting out, starting again, or, or young, or, or just at any stage in our lives, there's still more to be done. What, what, what are the sort of your top three things that, that still need to be sorted out? And what, what advice would you have to Rose and myself and the rest of the Africa team here that, that sort of, you know, what, what do we need to do? I, I think I need advice from you guys. <laughs> but I don't know. Um, I suppose one is what I've just said, this question about passion, you know, uh, not to be afraid uh, uh, to, to hold that passion, but also to show it. Um, and, and it's not difficult to, to, to have passion for the field in which you work, Emily. Um, and I know you are passionate. I suppose uh, the, the, the other thing is to... to, to uh, how can I say it, uh, to think, to be aware to, uh, uh, of your motivations. And I know that we all have different motivations, but I think if we interrogate them regularly, uh, why am I doing this or why I'm not doing that, uh, um, that would help uh, to keep us uh, on track with, uh, with what we want to do. Because sometimes... Uh, particularly if you if you work in an organization, in a large organization, you can lose track because there's so much going on. There are so many variables, so many pressures around you. So keeping your eyes on your motivations, it's 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 healthy and it helps us to keep uh, um, uh, on track. And the third thing I would be continue to learn as much as you can, uh, whether it's uh, 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 on technology. Um, uh, and 
or it's uh, on e uh, emerging issues or uh, approaches to the work, but really make an effort to continue learning because things change continuously and it's important to keep uh, abreast uh, because that will give you both the skills and confidence. You know, so I could sit and chat to you for hours and I know I, I, I can, if I'm going at another cup of tea and continue our conversation, but um, unless you have any final thoughts or reflections you'd like to share with, with us now, I mean, I, I'd just like to say a huge thank you and it, it's been fascinating and um, yeah, so I'm sure everybody listening today will be, um, they've probably got a lot more questions that they wish I'd put to you and be writing and saying, Could, why didn't you ask in this, this? So, um, again, a huge thank you from, from our side. side. My pleasure, my pleasure. Um, I don't know if I have a, a very, well, I suppose uh, what you do when you feel the, uh, however you call it, I think it's a, it's a really an essential part of uh, protecting our present well-being and, and, and those of the future generations. Um, so no pressure for you guys, but you do have a huge responsibility. <laughs> I, think, I think we'll have to continue to work together, and I like the fact that your different causes are, are getting much more aligned or, or, or recognised for the alignment that they have. I think we've known about it, but I think it's good to see a lot more conversation slowly creeping into the into the right spaces to to draw attention to these things. So um, climate and women and sustainability remains today a, a fundamental conversation, and we will continue to have it. So thank you. A huge thank you to Innes, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to subscribe and we hope you can join us soon for another episode. Episodes come out on the 8th of every month.